We happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother David for another history podcast. How are you doing, David? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Neil? I am also doing good, and I am in the mood for a new story today. Of course, an old story told newly. Well, this is getting confusing. David, <laughs> let's start the podcast. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's 1837, and in Guangzhou, China, a young man lies in bed with a dangerous fever. He suffered a nervous breakdown after failing the imperial examination. And now his symptoms have gotten so bad his family fears for his life. But as his body lies burning up, his mind dreams. All right, David, we are in China. I always love stories from this part of the world. What sort of fever is it? Tell us more about this young man and the symptoms that he's experiencing. So this young man, his name is Hong Hu Shu. He's 22 years old. He's been studying since he was five years old for the imperial examinations, the intense examinations that are the only path to the nobility for the people of China at this time. And his family has practically bankrupted themselves in order to pay to get him all of the best tutors. By the time he was 11 years old, he could recite the four books of Confucian thought. And despite everything, despite all of that, all that hard work, he's 22 years old, he just did the examinations, and he failed, and that was obviously super traumatic for him. Nervous breakdown, then he got sick, now he's got a fever. It's obviously very hard for him, for his family, for the entire village, really. So David, at this time, ordinary people could join the nobility by passing a test? So the imperial examination is the path to working in the imperial administration. But if you pass it with the highest possible marks, you're allowed to become a district commissioner. And if you serve successfully as a district commissioner, you get a noble title when you retire. So yes, if you pass this exam at the highest marks at the top level, best of the best, you can actually enter the actual nobility. Wow, what an opportunity, David. And this poor young man failed the test. Right, like 99% of people who write the test do. And to be clear, writing the test isn't cheap, and you have to demonstrate that you've had earlier education. You can't just walk in and write this exam. Obviously, because the rewards are so great, this is an incredibly intense educational experience. Well, I'm not unconvinced, David, that we shouldn't just make Jeopardy winners nobles in our day and age. I like the idea, but what kinds of things are on this test? What is it like? So the test is built around the Confucian classics. You're supposed to know the philosophy and thought of Confucius, which by this point in China is sort of almost a religion. And then you need to demonstrate that you understand it in depth by writing a series of formal essays in response to a series of essay prompts. That's how this thing works. Your essays need to be 
poetic, basically. There's certain meters you need to meet. Uh, you got to have everything. It's very structured, very formal, extremely difficult, and tied to the religious system in place in the Chinese empire at the time. Wow, David, that does sound like a hard test. I do not think I would do well on that. No nobility for me. So now that he's having these fever dreams, David, what is Hong Hu Shu seen? So he has a series of mysterious visions that he'll write down later on. He sees heaven. He says he's transported to heaven. He sees a man of ancient noble mien who's clearly God or some kind of God who instructs him on better ways to live his life and introduces him to his older brother who he's never met before and whose name he can't remember just when he first comes out of the fever dream. But he has had this intense religious experience and he wants to understand it. And he also wants a chance to try and get a do-over on the whole exam thing. So he decides to go back to the city, work for a little bit as a teacher, and try and figure out what was up with his dream and also get another opportunity to write the exam. So at the very least, David, he's feeling better. He's got a plan now. All right, so how does it go for him executing on this plan? So he does get a job as a teacher. He's reasonable, well-respected. He writes the exam a second time, fails a second time. This is not going well for Hong. And then he meets a preacher on the streets of Guangzhou, which is a fairly large city in China. And this preacher is actually an American Southern Baptist who has come to China to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, David. So an American enters into the story, and usually that leads to chaos. So what happens once he meets this preacher? Well, this is great, because now we can understand his vision. The mysterious part, who was this older brother? Now Hong gets it. The older brother, obviously, is Jesus, the other son of God, which means that he, Hong, is also the son of God, the younger son of God. So things are making a lot of sense for him. The Southern Baptist preacher apparently is not happy with these ideas, but Hong doesn't really care. So now that he's had his revelation, he decides he needs to preach the good news. He needs to let people know about this. So he starts going around to villages and spreading his message, and he finds a few other people who like him. There's two in particular. They're both also failed candidates for the imperial examinations who don't really know what to do with their lives right after. And they sign up on this, we're going to go and spread this new, exciting religious revelation that he's had, better way to live your life, new religion, whole thing. Well, David, this is quite a leap forward. About 1800 years after the first child, God has allegedly had a second child and he is a 22-year-old teacher in China. Well, you got to remember, there were some years, well, he went and was a village teacher and then did the exam a second time. So we've actually jumped forward to 1843, and he's really in his late 20s by this point. All right, he's a late 20s teacher in Guangzhou, China. David, are people really going to buy into this? Is, are people not just going to lock him up as a, another crazy person? Well, no one's locking anybody up at this point. In particular, they're not locking up anyone claiming to be a Christian preacher because that gets the British angry at you. 
and they just finished the whole first opium war, and the Chinese government doesn't want a second one. But also, initially, things go fine, he's preaching. Then he starts denouncing Confucianism as being awful and mystifying and making no sense, which are all things that probably lots of failed exam candidates feel. But when he smashes a Confucian shrine to show his rejection of this traditional religion, he does finally cross a line that puts him in conflict with the religious leaders of his home village. So this is starting to escalate a bit. He's no longer just going around saying he's the son of God, the second child of God, but now he's taking it to the point of attacking the established religion in China. Yeah, so he's forced to flee his village after doing this, and he goes to meet with some of the other guys who he set to preach in his good news when he sent them off on the start of this little adventure. And as he's going around, he starts realizing that there's a lot more people who are joining up with this new religion than he ever realized, because he's mostly been staying in one place. But there's actually a lot of new believers, so he starts gathering them together, and soon he has a following of thousands of people, which obviously is new and exciting for him, and scary and bad for the imperial officials in the region. So a new religion has sprung up in China, David, all because of his fever dreams after failing this extremely hard test. What's he going to do with this newfound power of sorts um, created by this thousands of followers? Well, the imperial district magistrate doesn't like Hong, doesn't like the new religion, really doesn't like that they smashed a Confucian shrine and declares that the entire religion is outlawed. And in response, Hong announces the formation of the new Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, which will be the new kingdom of God on Earth with himself as its king. Turns out governments don't like it when you do this, by the way. Now we're getting somewhere, David. God has a new kingdom on Earth. His self-appointed son is going to lead it. I'm assuming this local magistrate who outlawed the religion was one of these guys who actually passed the exam? Indeed. So he's obviously on the other side of all this. But David, China is a big country. It's very powerful. Can they not just stamp this out pretty easily? Well, initially, it's no one's top priority. The first forces sent against them are basically local district militia cops, sort of, you know, very low-level forces. They beat them. There's a first army sent against them. It's very small. No one at the capital believed that there were really thousands of people excited about this new religion, so they didn't send enough troops. That goes badly too. But the third time around, the Chinese finally send a real army to crush this new Taiping state before it can get off the ground. And the little rebellion, the new army's too big. They know they can't face it, so they're forced to disperse and flee. It's 1850, and it looks like the Taiping Rebellion is over. Just another tiny little cult going nowhere. Tiny rebellion. Roll credits, David? So in 1851, there's an unfortunate event in the more northern areas of China. The Yellow River floods. This is disastrous. Tens of thousands of people die. The Chinese government is suddenly desperately trying to 
look after this new devastated region. People are impoverished, which means bandits are springing up everywhere. And it's very close to Beijing, the capital of China, so the government makes it the priority. And everyone sort of forgets about these Taiping guys we were going to crush, but, you know, we have more important things going on. So suddenly, the Taiping, who scattered to evade the Chinese army, are able to come back together again and seize the city of Nanjing, which is a major city in southern China, and declare it the capital of their Taiping heavenly kingdom. Well, David, when you're in government, there's never just one crisis at a time. So the Chinese government is distracted from this rebellion going on, this heavenly kingdom being created on Earth by flooding, a natural event. Some might say, David, an act of God. So this gives the rebels, the Taiping heavenly kingdom, a chance to reconstitute. But David, will they be more successful this time? Won't they just run into the same problem that China's much bigger and more powerful than they are? No, not really. The Chinese government is suddenly dealing with the Taiping Rebellion, which they're really not focused on. It's in the far south. They have closer things to home to worry about. The flooding of the Yellow River. The Nian Rebellion, which is a rebellion that's directly caused by the flooding of the Yellow River. All of these newly impoverished farmers who've lost all their crops just start raiding other people to try and survive. Some leaders emerge among them trying to direct this into a more productive sort of path, and suddenly that's a massive problem. There's another couple of rebellions. The Red Turban Rebellion and the Small Sword Rebellion also have to be dealt with. And so for the first couple of years... While the Taiping Rebellion is securing their power base in southern China, the government is not worrying about them at all. And then, by the time the government is finally ready to focus on them, they've grown very large, they've established their own state, their own arsenal building weapons, and even their own examinations to become part of the imperial administration of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. David, somewhat ironic that they would create this examination that is the thing that was the catalyst for all of this from the Confucius religion. Now they're going to create an examination. Shouldn't they be worried that someone who fails this examination will now go and start their own religion? No, they're all very excited about the idea of an examination based around the Bible instead of the four Confucian books and based around, in their view a more equal, better system, including, for the first time in Chinese history, permission for women to write the examinations, which is an interesting change from the previous system. So they're new, they're enthusiastic, they're setting up an entire government, they have an army, they're going to war with the Qing dynasty, which in turn is realizing that they don't have really the forces to fight with this new enthusiastic rebellion. The Qing have a bunch of problems. Their army is split in two. They have the Green Banner Army and the Yellow Standard Army, which are separate for reasons of preventing any one general from commanding all of the troops and being able to overthrow the emperor. But they don't work well together. So now that there's one big force they need to fight, they keep on falling apart and bickering rather than 
standing up and facing the Taiping. So the Taiping are on the move again. And then, because this wasn't messy and confusing enough, in 1856, the British decide to have a second opium war while the Taiping Rebellion is still ongoing, and a bunch of the other rebellions I've already mentioned aren't really finished. Now the British are invading, and the French. It's a mess. A giant mess. So this has turned into a real problem for the Qing dynasty that is ruling China. They've got rebellions, they've got a foreign force, and on their doorstep, the kingdom of heaven. David, what is the end goal here for our Taiping heavenly kingdom? Are they content to just sit back and live in peace and harmony forever? No. After they've consolidated in the south, they start going on the offensive against the Qing directly, really for the first time. For most of the early portion of their rebellion, they were going up against local forces or other rebels because the Qing were so distracted away from southern China, they were they had a free hand. But now they're going on the offensive against the Qing, and their initial offensives are very successful. In fact, they're so successful that by 1860, they're closing in on the city of Shanghai, uh, which happens to be the major British trading port in China. Well, that is quite the success for them, David, but is this going to bring the British into this and create a problem for the British Empire? It does. The British are not thrilled at the idea of a war reaching their trading port and interrupting their trade. But the British also don't want to go to war against the Taiping until they've determined whether they're Christian or not, because Europeans really don't have a good idea of what's happening in China at this point. So when they hear about an emperor who talks about Jesus Christ a lot, they don't necessarily realize how weird his vision of Jesus Christ really is. But even though they don't want to go directly to war, they do send one of their most famous generals, Charles Gordon, and a whole bunch of weapons to help the Qing forces near Shanghai win against the Taiping to make sure that the port will be safe. But they also don't like the Qing because they just fought the Second Opium War with them. So they just pick a random local noble and landowner and have him raise a militia and help him create the army to fight the Taiping, which is very successful tactically at beating the Taiping. But it's not good for the Qing Empire as a whole, because now the British and later on other forces are starting to arm basically warlords inside Chinese territory. A classic colonial move by the British, David, to just start creating warlords almost at random within the country they're colonizing or controlling. So what's going to happen to the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom now that they've suffered military defeat en route to Shanghai? Well, things start to turn by this point. After 1860, the Qing forces start going on the offensive. The Qing emperor eventually starts allowing and even encouraging the creation of more local forces, even though it raises the risk of warlordism because it allows him to get more military force fighting the Taiping everywhere, tying them down in more and more places. The empire starts shrinking. 
Meanwhile, Hong, back in Nanjing, he's stopped going out to lead his forces at all. He's been living as an emperor in his capital city. He decides that his previous adoption of Christian rules about marriage with strict monogamy, one man, one woman, were a good idea for everybody else, but not for Hong. He should have a harem. So he starts building that and getting distracted by not state ruling activities. And this in turn starts leading to infighting at the top of the Taiping without a strong leader. Various Taiping generals start fighting each other for power, which in turn weakens them and gives the Qing more and more opportunities to drive them back. David, it sounds like Taiping is in need of some help from Hong's father. Are they going to get another miracle from God to keep this heavenly kingdom going here on earth? No, Hong has run out of miracles. In 1864, Hong dies, and then shortly after, the Taiping heavenly kingdom basically falls apart, and the Qing dynasty reasserts control over all of China. But the Qing dynasty itself has been seriously wounded by this. All of the local forces that they propped up to fight the Taiping don't just vanish when the war is over. And even though everybody acknowledges theoretically that they're all subjects of the Qing emperor, you won't see the same level of unity in the administration of China until the 1900s, until basically the Second World War. So David, this failed exam, although it doesn't really end in peace on earth and God ruling everything, it does have major consequences for the Chinese state. For the Chinese state, for the world, the British Empire's involvement in China in the 1860s is very deep, very tied into their trade, which in turn determines a lot of how they rule India. And obviously, this giant war going on inside of China affects all of that in major ways. There's American traders involved, not to mention the American missionaries who are horrified to see what they're preaching, the message that they tried to convey of Orthodox Protestant Christianity, what it's turned into in Chinese hands. And that will affect American missionary work in China. It's one of the biggest wars in world history, frequently cited as the third or fourth highest by death toll. That sort of depends on how you calculate things, but certainly massive, massive war. An amazing amount of effects to come out of the dream of a failed student. So I think the lesson here, David, is that if you fail your exams this exam season, don't get upset, just create a new religion. Something like that. I was going to go with the opposite. Don't create a new religion. It's fun in the moment. It ends badly. It could lead to one of the largest wars in world history. David, thanks for telling us this story. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you enjoyed this story, it does come up a little bit in one of our past episodes. Episode 46, The French Bandits and the Black Flag Army. There is some tie-in between these two stories, so... Go back and have a listen to The French Bandits and the Black Flag Army, available for free with all our past podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. David, we always like to end with something fun. Should we do a quiz? 
I could do a quiz, Neil. All right, this one's a little bit different, David. I got this game for Christmas a couple months ago when Christmas was, so I thought we'd give it a try here and play a little bit of this game called Timeline. All right. So the way it works is I have some cards from this game right now. I am shuffling them as we speak, so it is completely random. I will draw three cards, and you have to put the three events on the cards in order of when they happen, from earliest to latest. Make sense? That makes sense. All right, here are our first three cards drawn at random. The Cold War begins, the First Gulf War begins, and the Great Fire of London. So the Great Fire of London has to be first, followed by the Cold War, and the Gulf War only began after the Cold War really was over by most accounts. So I'd put them in that order. Fire of London, Cold War, Gulf War. You are correct, David. The Great Fire of London was 1666. The Cold War began in 1947. And then in 1990, the first Gulf War began. Next three cards, David. The Great Fire of Rome, the arrival of the Mayflower in America, and the American Civil War breaks out. Well, I think those three cards are already in order amongst themselves. You are correct, David. The Great Fire of Rome was in the year 64. The arrival of the Mayflower, of course, 1620. And then 1861 was the start of the American Civil War. Two for two, David. Here are our next three cards. Establishing of the Papal Inquisition, the Revolt of Spartacus, and slavery is abolished in the United States. All right. I believe the Revolt of Spartacus predates Christianity as a whole. So it's definitely before the establishment of the Papal Inquisition. And then I suspect that any American events would have to be after the establishment of the Inquisition. So I think that it goes Spartacus, Papal Inquisition, America. You are correct, David. The revolt of Spartacus was in the year 73 BC. Then the Inquisition started in 1231, and slavery was abolished in 1865 after the Civil War that we had in our uh, last question. All right, David, our next three cards. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. Rosa Park refuses to give up her seat in the bus. And the Founding of the Templars. All right, so the Founding of the Templars is associated with the Crusades, so it has to be the first of these three. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen is from the French Revolution, if I'm not mistaken, which puts it relatively close to the American Revolution, and that leaves Rosa Parks as our third and last card. Once again, David, you have got it. The Founding of the Templars was in 1119, the Declaration of Rights of Man and the Citizen in 1789, and Rosa Parks in 1955. Not that long ago. Last three cards for you here, David. We have The Black Death Starts Spreading in Europe, The Completion of the Taj Mahal, and Napoleon Becomes Emperor. All right. So Napoleon Becomes Emperor is clearly the last of those three. But I'm not sure about whether the Black Death in Europe comes before the building of the Taj Mahal in India. I'm going to guess that the Black Death predates 
the Taj Mahal so that it goes Black Death, Taj Mahal, Napoleon. But that's just a guess. Tell me if I'm right. You are right, David. The Black Death starts spreading in Europe in 1346. It wasn't until 1653 that the Taj Mahal was completed in India, and Napoleon became the emperor in 1804. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 